I wanted to give you an update on our uh, Easter mercy offering for the Ukrainian churches and for the Navajo log splitter. We reached our goal uh, of giving, uh, which always amazes and surprises me. I should maybe not be so surprised by you all, but um, it's really fun. I'm going to send money this week, so if you had planned to give to it and haven't told me yet, at least tell me if you can't get the money in just yet, and we'll include that in what we send. But thank you. That's really encouraging to me, and I think it's fun for our little church to uh, be able to help out with what God is doing around the world. So... Um, We're going to be in Mark chapter 5 today in uh, one of the wilder stories in all of the scripture, especially in the Gospels. Um, A couple of weeks ago, before Easter, we uh, read the passage before this in which Jesus brought his disciples out of an uncontrollable storm that scared them just straight to death. You know, they really thought they were going to die. And um, so they go through all that emotional stuff, see calms at Jesus' word, they come... uh, to shore in a Gentile area, and now he's going to deliver them from an uncontrollable evil. You know, they're probably emotionally spent coming out of that storm and things, and now they get uh, into just a crazy situation. And if you're new, this may sound really crazy to you. Just know that if those of us who've been around a long time, it sounds crazy to us too. <laughs> so, and if nothing else today, you get a story of. Uh, some redneck preacher with an accent from Georgia talking about hell and demons and angels. So that's a, you know, you've at least got that for your trouble in coming today. Um, the story is about uh, people on two different trajectories in their lives, uh, very unpredictably. One is a person who is barely human. Uh, he's so uh, devolved and debased in his life that most everything that creates anything noticeably human and beautiful in his life has been stripped away. And that person is on a trajectory towards uh, what the Bible calls the glory of the sons of God. He's being rehumanized. He's going to uh, live with creativity and reason and love with other people in ways that no one ever thought he would again. So there's a person you wouldn't expect on that trajectory. And then you have people who are pretty much responsible citizens, you know, taxpaying types who do what they're supposed to do and seem okay and whom you would think God probably likes them fine because, you know, they handle their business. Uh, But they're on a trajectory unknown to them uh, toward dehumanization, towards debasement, towards the destruction of all the beautiful faculties they have as human beings over time. And both stories are surprising to us. So that's what we're going to think about today. And all of it wraps up, you know, all of it depends on their reaction and response to Jesus Christ when they meet him. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to you as we listen to your word. We're here because we need you, we need to know you, and we ask that you'd come meet with us and speak to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Gospel of St. Mark, uh, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. He says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he 
wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the, in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So you don't get many dull days as one of Jesus' disciples. You know, they, come out, they come out of the storm and drag themselves onto land, you know, and they're not really given any explanation that's written down about why they were going here, but they're going to a Gentile area, which is creepy in their minds. It's a dirty place. They're like, why are we going there? So they're a little sketch about that. They're emotionally exhausted from the travails they had in the boat. And when they land on the other side, where they're already feeling a little out of place and uneasy, uh, the Chamber of Commerce sends uh, their representative to greet them at the boat. Um, you know, if you're whoever was in charge of the garrison economy didn't like this guy running up to greet the new people, but here comes this wild man. Um, and, I mean, really wild. He hasn't had on clothes in a long time. Uh, he's barely human. Nasty, dirty, naked, raging, uncontrolled, uncontrollable. Um, as much of a mess as anybody you've ever seen. And he comes, and he doesn't just come up quietly, he comes up screaming. And if you're one of the disciples, you're probably thinking, you know, I, I think I left something in the boat. I'll be back. <laughs> you know, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about this. This is weird. Because the guy is, uh, he's broken about every way you can break. You know, um, he's broken spiritually. He's got demons living in him. Um, he's broken socially. I mean, he lives in the tombs. He's cut off from his family. Obviously, I'm sure they probably tried for a while to be able to manage him, but they can't have him around at all anymore. If he ever had a job, he doesn't have a job now and isn't going to be able to get one. He's never going to be able to have a family. Um, 
it's as grim as grim gets for this guy. Uh, he's physically ruined. Uh, he's emotionally ruined, psychologically ruined. Um, he's just he's just broken. And the Bible says it's because he was demonized. With he said his name was Legion, which is like a Roman uh, set of troops that's six thousand people. This, I mean, it, may, it probably means it's 6,000 demons in this guy. It's, believe me, there are a lot more questions raised than and I know how to answer in the passage, but you know, we'll dig into some. But that's wild, isn't it? I mean, demonized like this, it's, uh, it really sounds odd to modern ears to talk about somebody being demonized because it feels primitive and superstitious on one hand, and two, it's just foreign to our experience. We don't, we don't see things like this very much that we would... Uh, Described this way as somebody's demonized, and also we don't like we don't like supernatural uh, components to our explanations of what's going on. We like natural cause and effect pretty well, you know. When I was coming through school, uh, everything was behaviorism. You know, B.F. Skinner. It's uh, your environment shapes you and makes you who you are. You're basically a blank slate, and then whatever your terrible parents did to you is the reason that you are the way you are today, and uh, that. I mean, I guess maybe those people grew up and had kids, so you don't hear that as the explanation in toto anymore as much. You're much more likely, if there's somebody who's going to give you a one overarching answer about why people do things, it's going to be brain chemistry these days, right? You know, it's just, this is how we are wired, and this is how the chemicals in our brains shape us and make us. Um, and then all along, people also want to say, well, personal choices are a huge part of what's going on in your life, too. But when... You meet somebody like this man in Gerasene uh, trying to explain him. You know, the Bible takes those other things into account plus some more things. It's like there are a lot of factors that go into understanding why we do what we do. Um, sure brain chemistry, sure environment, sure personal choices. But also, um, the Bible talks about the world having an influence on us, like the, the systems and structures in the communities that we're in have a shaping influence on us. So that's part of what uh, the Bible talks about is why we are, how we are and what we do. The people around us shape us. Um, our minds are um, not just conflicted, but they're bent morally away from God. And that really shapes a lot of what we do. Um, and, you know, our wills, our decision-making ability is also a mess because of our rebellion against God. And on top of all those things, the Bible talks about supernatural personal evil as being a part of the explanation for why we do what we do. And so the idea that there are demons in the world and that they have some influence um, is part of the Bible's description of what causes to happen what happens. That's part of it. Now, I never, almost never, I'm in a situation where I think, wow, that's a, uh, that's a demonic situation. I mean, the, it's hard to know why. You know, I'm believing that there's a devil that is active and uh, is a problem for us in our lives is one thing. Uh, naming with a lot of certainty and confidence what's going on with regard to that is another thing. I'll come back to that in just a minute. What's the first thing you think of when you hear about this guy? Though? What's wrong with him? He's schizophrenic, isn't he? I mean, he's bound. He's got to be schizophrenic. You know, he's hearing voices, right? And he's 
uncontrollable. He can't control himself. It, it feels like he's got some sort of mental illness that's likely schizophrenia-based or schizophrenia-related. Um, the thing is, though, that um, to say it's just mental illness, it seems at least partly mental illness. He wasn't in his right mind before, it says. Um, you, have to, you have to take into account that the rabbis in the first century had categories for mental illness. They talked about how to distinguish someone who's mentally ill from someone who is under the influence of the demonic. I don't know how good their categories were, but they had the categories, just like we do. And so that's one thing that affects how you think about this. The other is, um, if you want to say this is just mental illness, it's just schizophrenia, um, then I would ask you, how sure are you that there's no supernatural element involved in schizophrenia? Um, is that just brain chemistry? Because it seems weird to me that every, everyone that is tortured by voices in their head is tortured by them. Like schizophrenics don't hear loving and affirming voices telling them that they can do it and people really like them. Right? They're terrified. And you know, you see people who are uh, uh, really in the throes of this, and it, they just look like they live in abject terror because of these voices. Um, so why are the voices always condemning rather than affirming? It, it doesn't seem preposterous to say that there's more going on than just brain chemistry and what we see. And certainly Jesus identifies this as being uh, in large part because the man was demonized. Now, why don't we, um, if that's the case, why don't we see more things that we would call demonic possession or activity uh, in our day? That's always a interesting question to me. Um, I'm glad you asked. The, uh, there are a couple of reasons given. I'm not sure which one is right. Both of them seem a little bit plausible to me. One is that there was a flurry of open activity of a demonic nature around the time that Jesus came and his uh, early days of his apostles' ministries that you don't see anywhere else in the Bible. Like in the Old Testament, it doesn't talk about people being demonized in the later New Testament, the letters that Jesus' disciples wrote to the churches, it doesn't say, make sure you know how to manage the demonized issues that are always coming up. You know, here's the instructions. It feels like this was very unique to the time of Jesus and his ministry. And some people say that's why we don't see things that much anymore. Other people say that um, it has to do with places where the gospel is new, uh, where familiarity with Jesus Christ and his good news is low and people begin to speak about and preach about the hope that he brings that there's a reaction and pushback demonically. And so you hear a lot in pioneering missionary environments uh, you hear more stories about what feels like open supernatural uh, pushback and that also seems plausible to me I'm not sure which is the answer but both of those I think uh, help us understand why we can take this seriously without expecting it to be normative in our lives every day. Uh, because it's not for anybody that I know. Um, but the really bitter thing that you have to kind of face in this wild story about the Gerizim demoniac is that Jesus seems to think that all of us are just as hopeless and helpless as this guy. And that the one thing he needed in his life was the same thing that we need in our lives, uh, which is to be rescued by Jesus Christ. 
And usually when you read a story like this, you don't identify yourself with the Gerizine demoniac. But, you know, that's the kind of thing Jesus always seems to do to us. And he doesn't say that everybody's as broken now as this guy was broken then. But you get these trajectory arguments in the Bible this way. So it's sort of like the, uh, uh, when the restraints are removed from us, uh, we devolve pretty quickly in most everything good about being a human being. Um, if you are a complaining person when you are young and you keep habitually complaining all the time in your life, by the time you're 70 or 80 years old, you know, that, that one worst trait you have is going to be the only thing anyone knows about you is that you're a complainer. Right? Bitterness works the same way. Self-righteousness works the same way. Um, there's kind of a trajectory morally to who we are and how we live in our lives. And uh, C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this in a couple of his books. But he's saying, if you think about a complaining person uh, that grows to 75 years old and has become notoriously just one big walking complaint, so imagine if you extend that out, not just 70 years, but 700 years or 70,000 years. And you take away the restraint of God's uh, merciful presence in their lives. And that person, before too long, would not be recognizably human. Um, and uh, the idea of these trajectories that we're on in our lives um, are hard to see right now, but we're told kind of, these are the directions we're going in, what will happen with us. Uh, and so the people in the town didn't think that they were a mess. They thought that Gerizim Demoniac was a mess. But he got on a different trajectory when he met Jesus. And the tra trajectory they were on was going uh, in a dehumanizing other way. It's uh, like Lewis said in his book, The Great Divorce. I know some of you have read The Great Divorce. It's uh, sort of a, it's a fictional reflection on the afterlife uh, from a Christian perspective. But he describes uh, perdition or hell as not just being um, absent from the presence of God, but increasingly also absent from other people because of our grievances grow and we nurture them and God's mercy doesn't temper them and that eventually we become more and more isolated from other people. So his, his picture of hell was an expanding sprawl of a city where people lived further and further and further away from each other and became more and more alone as they became more and more dehumanized. Um, in Luke's uh, account of the Gerizim demoniac, it's one, another of the gospel accounts, uh, he also quotes the demons as saying, um, let us go into the pigs, don't throw us into the abyss. Uh, the abyss meaning hell. Usually everything we hear about hell is sort of given to us figuratively in the Bible and metaphors or analogies. Uh, but it's certainly a place of uh, the absence of God and torment. Not sadistic torment, but the absence of God that the demons expect to be their fate. And as an aside, it's kind of amazing how much they know. Like they know exactly who Jesus is. Nobody else comes up to us and says... You're the son of the most high God. You know, but the demons, they know. How do you think they know? Do you think they remember? Maybe from before they fell? I, I'm, I shouldn't be raising more questions that I can't answer because that intrigues me, though. Like, how do they know who he is? But um, basically, the trajectory that says, I will rule my own life, 
And if there's anything wrong in my life, I'll fix it myself. Is the attitude of the demons and is a trajectory of life that leads us away from God and causes us to be dehumanized and on a trajectory towards looking like the hell on earth that the Gerizim demoniac experienced in his life here. So, um, the other thing, while we're talking about hell and I'm digging the hole deep enough, um, the other thing that's a problem for us when we think about punishment in the next life uh, is that it feels unjust and disproportionate to us. Like it, it doesn't seem right that people should be cut off from God permanently uh, because of a short life on earth. But that objection assumes that people are sorry. That people want to repent, want to bow the knee to Jesus, and want to worship him. And we don't have any evidence that that is the case. C.S. Lewis again, um, sorry, but he's right his best about this stuff. His, his famous quote is, and I, I feel like it's theologically sound, is that the door to hell is locked from the inside. It's locked from the inside. It's not like a bunch of people who are dying to worship Jesus but can't. It's a, it's a desire to run our own lives, to be my own Lord and my own Savior, thank you very much. Which isn't hideous to us when we run into it. Usually we appreciate people who think that way and respect them. Uh, Jesus says it's our main spiritual problem. It's that desire to run our own lives and fix whatever's wrong with us ourselves. So Jesus comes and he values this man. And I don't, the encounter's wild enough. The guy seems to be out of his mind. But just the idea that Jesus is standing there looking at him and seeing the image of God still in a human being and treating him with love and humanness and dignity is beautiful. He doesn't see this guy as a monster. He sees him as somebody who is in the image of God who needs to be rescued and he's willing to rescue him. And uh, man, that's the kind of thing that makes me love Jesus. You know, he's, uh, He is beautiful in ways that we don't expect him to be. He pities the man, he rescues him, he restores him, and rehumanizes him. Right? I mean, it's part of Jesus' mission all along is to conquer evil. He starts his ministry uh, being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Uh, you, we see all these points of conflict in the story so far about Jesus dealing with people uh, who have um, open demonic activity going on in their lives. And then ultimately he goes to the cross uh, to defeat all of our enemies for us. Right? Um, but what he does on the cross for Legion is especially beautiful because um, he basically becomes what Legion was for Legion's sake. Right? He, uh, he's driven out from town and from society. He's stripped and is naked. His body is mutilated as legions was. He is mocked and derided as legion was. And he is debased and God-forsaken and dehumanized for legion's sake. He didn't scold legion. He didn't just say, wow, I feel really sorry for you. He entered his life. He entered his experience as he has entered our experience. And we needed it as much as legion needed it. 
And what he says about the guy at the end is just, just it takes your breath away. So the townspeople come, what do they see? They see this guy sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. Not just forgiven, <laughs> rehumanized. He's human again, and it's beautiful. He's right with God. He's got hope socially again now. He's mentally not completely tormented. He's physically uh, able not to harm himself anymore. And um, everything that was broken, Jesus is fixing. And a lot of it's already fixed with this guy right away. And that's beautiful. His life is integrated now in human. When Jesus asked him, what's your name? Before he said, my name's Legion. There are thousands of tormentors in me. You wonder now if uh, someone asked him his name, if he wouldn't say, my name is One. One. Because Jesus reintegrated my life and he gave me back my humanness. It's very beautiful. I don't know that his life gets all that less weird because he wants to follow Jesus and Jesus, surprisingly, every time he answers anything that's surprising, he says, uh, no, (laughs) don't follow me. Go back to your town and tell people what I've done for you. Whew. So, you know, I would think all the first encounters they had with everybody in town were awkward after the life that he's lived in. But maybe he's a good person. He's the first person to go tell Gentiles, like most of us are Gentiles, right? The first person to tell Gentiles about the hope of Jesus Christ. Like, he started the movement that led to us being rescued by Jesus, like, and hearing that news. This guy. And, uh, Presumably, he was not inhibited like we are. I don't really want to say anything about religion. I don't want to make an awkward conversation. He's like, yeah, I gave up on awkward a long time ago, baby. So, you know, let's talk. I'm sure he was good at that. But you see, like you see in this guy's life, a lot in Christianity and the church. is that It's the people who are blown away by the mercy of Jesus who are the best people to tell other people about the mercy of Jesus. Mercy begets mercy. Uh, almost always in a church, the brand new Christians are the best recruiters for people to come in and hear about Jesus. Right? And uh, just because mercy's just, they can taste it so much still, they're able to talk about it, I guess. The sad part of the story is the other trajectory, the townspeople. Um, they asked him to leave. I mean, all, they, they all, it's like a big problem. It's sort of like if you're in charge of homelessness in Los Angeles and you're like, I don't know what to do. And everybody's like that with this guy. I don't know what to do. We can't shackle him. And he's running around the tombs and meeting the boats, apparently, that land on the shore. And, um, what are we going to do? And Jesus fixes that problem instantly. And they're like, yeah, you should go away. We don't want you to stay here. And uh, why? Why would they ask him to go away? Because they like pigs better than they like people. Pigs over people. Pigs are business. It's their livelihood. 2,000 pigs? Dead? That's financial ruin. There's Jesus. He's going to ruin us financially if we let him stay here. No, no, please go away. We care about pigs more than we care about people. Which is not that unusual a calculus, right? 
But Jesus said, Legion is in the image of God. This man, this human being, what's left of him, is immensely valuable to me. More than, more than your money. I care about him more than I care about your money. And if you're going to be around me, that's going to happen to you too. And they figured that out. And they said, well, we'd rather not be around you. We don't want to be around you. People often forget this, and the church has often forgotten it too. And it's for, we prefer pigs to people pretty often. Chattel slavery is pigs over people. Right? We want our money more than we care about the image of God and a human being. The Industrial Revolution and child labor uh, that still goes on around the world so much today is pigs over people. Right? We care more about our money than we care about the image of God. Colonialism, uh, unborn children, wars of adventure. Uh, every reader listen about World War I. Uh, Western civilization, the Christian West, is pigs over people. And would grind human beings up for the sake of money. So they said, go away. We don't want you messing in our lives this much. I don't want to have to rethink my money. I don't want to have to rethink my friends and my opinions and my past and my reputation. I don't want to have to rethink all that. It's too dramatic for me. And so please go away. I like being my own Lord and my own Savior. I run my own life. If something's wrong, I fix it. So go away. And what did Jesus do? He went away. He went away. Um, and so this beautiful story is a sad story. You know, the trajectories, respectable together, responsible business people, launch themselves down a path that in 30 years or 300 years or 3,000 years is going to make them unrecognizably human. And this man who's crazy and ruined in every way you can be ruined uh, comes to Jesus and finds himself on a trajectory that's going to make him beautiful and noble. He's going to experience what our New Testament reading today called the glory of the sons of God. That's his trajectory now. So you look at that and you think, okay, well, um, which trajectory am I on? <laughs> Right? Because that's kind of the question that faces you. When I look at that question, I think I'm on both of those trajectories. I, I've got a super self-righteous side and a super licentious side. And I could see them both becoming the whole story about me before very long without much trouble. Um, but for any of us, the message we have in Jesus is the only hope we have for being truly rehumanized be who we were meant to be, be connected to God the way we were supposed to be connected, be healed in the ways we need to be healed, the only hope we have is in the mercy of Jesus. And if that means he's going to come in and mess up your financial life or your love life or your uh, other relationships or your job or whatever else, um, it's worth it. It's worth it. And uh, so let me just in closing say as seriously and soberly as I know how to say it, um, take warning from the people of Gerasim and their calculus where they decided they would rather have economic stability and money uh, than to care about a human being. Uh, don't, please don't ask Jesus to go away because he might. Now let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, 
you always surprise us when we pay close attention to who you are and what you do. And, uh, but you're so beautiful to us. And uh, the way you're willing to look at people like Legion and like us with pity and with hope. And I pray that I and my friends here would feel that hope. That we'd be able to see your eyes, look at us with compassion uh, and the willingness to come to our rescue. Let us trust in you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.